Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Sweeney, here with my co-host, Kristen Padilla. With today's episode, we're starting a new series on the theme of Beeson Divinity School and Bible Publishing. We'll interview two of our alumni and one of our professors, all of whom are active in translating, publishing, or marketing the scriptures. We'll give you an inside look at the people and the processes through which we get our Bibles, and we hope this will help you to pray for these folks and the life-saving, life-giving work they're doing. Before we dive in, let me invite you back to campus on Tuesday morning, January 24 at 11 a.m. for opening convocation. Our new Anglican Chair of Divinity, Dr. Jonathan Leinbaugh, will preach in that service. He'll launch our spring series on the life of Jesus of Nazareth, find out more about coming back to chapel, and enjoy checking out our entire spring series at beesondivinity.com worship. Today's guest is joining us by Zoom from the suburbs of the Windy City, Chicago. So Kristen, who is he and how is he involved in making the word of God available to Christians around the world? Hi, Doug. Thank you. And hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. We have with us today, Jeff Gissing. Jeff Gissing is Director of Acquisitions for Bibles at Tyndall Publishers. He is uh, one of our best Beeson graduates, having earned his MDiv degree in 2002, and he's ordained in the ECO, a Covenant Order of Evangelical Presbyterians. We're going to hear more about Jeff in just a minute, but welcome, Jeff, to the Beeson podcast. Thanks, Kristen. Thanks, Doug. It's uh, fantastic to be with you this afternoon. Well, I gave a short bio, but as a way of introduction to begin the show, please tell us more about yourself. Um, introduce introduce yourself. Where are you from, and sure. how did you come to faith in Jesus Christ? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Kristen. Um, I, I, I like to say that I'm from a little bit of everywhere. I actually grew up um, abroad, um, spent the formative years of my childhood uh, in the United Kingdom, and then moved to the U.S. on the West Coast uh, when I was a teenager. So I kind of split my time between uh, Europe and then uh, the West Coast. I went to high school in Las Vegas. So um, I have been around the world to interesting places and grew up in the church. My, my parents are believers and raised me as a believer. I grew up, grew up going to an evangelical congregation in the south of England. And so I was really nurtured in the church and that sort of my the process of the faith of my parents becoming my faith was really sort of coalesced around an experience with someone that I'm sure many of us have heard of. It's Billy Graham. He came and preached in the United Kingdom in, I think it was 1989. And so I was at a satellite location and had heard the gospel growing up and been in and around church, but it really sort of impacted me in a sort of deeply existential way that day. And that's when I really made a very concrete and life-changing decision to follow Christ. And so that's how I, how I came to faith. Uh, it, was a, it was not the beginning of my faith, but it was, it was certainly when it became the most deeply meaningful for me and sort of changed the direction of my life. So yeah, that's, that's a little bit about who I am. 
lived in Chicago. I live in Wheaton, Illinois, and we've been here for about five years. So yeah, excited to to be here. Wonderful. And Jeff, Kristen has already bragged about you and said you're one of our favorite alumni here at Beeson. But tell our listeners, how'd you decide to go to seminary in the first place? And why did you come to Beeson? Sure. I felt called into ministry when I was in high school. And really significant influence on me at that point in my life was Frank Lewis, who's just recently retired as uh, the pastor of First Baptist Church of Nashville. And he was my pastor when I was in high school. And it was during those years that I felt called into ministry and kind of processed. He walked me through that process, preached at our church in suburban Las Vegas. And Frank was a Sanford alum, and that's how I first heard the name Sanford. And so I came and did my undergraduate degree, philosophy and religion there at Sanford. And uh, after I graduated, was looking uh, at options for how to take the next step of my uh, vocational journey. And I kind of thinking about doing graduate school in philosophy. And uh, back then, when you got applications from grad programs in philosophy, it came with a very scary letter that said, you really should think twice about doing this um, because the job market is for philosophers was, was and I'm sure still is fairly limited. And so I, I decided that uh, seminary was the better option for me. And I think that was a pretty wise uh, choice on my part. So I started, I actually started seminary at, at uh, Princeton Theological Seminary in New Jersey and did my first year there. And I, I sort of had to move away from Sanford and from Beeson to really appreciate it. It was during that year at Princeton that I really realized, you know, I'm an evangelical. And I want to be among evangelicals in a school that's confessionally rooted. And uh, so at the end of that first uh, year, I transferred my, my credit back to Beeson and was one of the, the best decisions I've ever made. Academically, I just loved my time there, the community of uh, scholarship and of um, friends, student friends, faculty friends was just was really significant. And I, I felt known. And I felt like I belonged there in a way that just never was true uh, at Princeton, as fine of a school as that is. I just, Beeson, uh, I realized pretty quickly that Beeson was where I was meant to be. And of course, you came you came here and you met your wife. I did. Uh, now yes. wife. <laughs> yes. So that was a big plus as well. Absolutely. Uh, my wife, Anna, and I met, or at least noticed each other for the first time at the in the computer lab. That was uh, where I met Anna, and we went on our, our first couple of dates and got to know each other and, and ended up getting married, which has been just a huge blessing for me. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely love Beeson and my time there. Well, um, as Doug mentioned, you are our first guest for this series on publishing, specifically as it relates to Bibles. And Mm -hmm. as I mentioned, you are the Director of Acquisitions for Bibles at Tyndale. I just wonder if you can tell us about your work and what does an Acquisitions Director of Bibles do? Um, So tell us about your work on a daily basis. Yeah, sure. You know, in, in the world of publishing, the people in Acquisitions are the people that go out and find authors to write books and take on uh, publishing projects. And so I do some of that. It's a little different in Bibles because, you know, any Bible that we publish, you know, 95% of it is already written um, and translated. And so my work is I'm 
we, we think of publishing in, in sort of two halves. Half of it is acquisitions, and we might also use the term product development. It sounds a little more commercial, but it's really sculpting and creating um, a, a book or a Bible that is going to meet the needs of an audience. And then there's the marketing side, which is the, the, the process of connecting that book, Bible, or other kind of published product to that audience. And so on a daily basis, I'm, I'm splitting my time between um, working on ideas for new possible kinds of Bibles that, um, that we might want to publish off into the future. Um, and Bible publishing is a very long horizon industry. And so, you know, the shortest you can do a Bible is two to three years. And so we're often working years and years in advance, identifying the kind of the kinds of Bibles that we'll need, um, responding to trends that we're seeing in the marketplace. So part of it, like I said, is going out and finding individuals or organizations that we might want to partner with on Bible projects. And the uh, other part of it is working on the Bibles we already have and keeping those fresh, looking at how our community of readers around the globe, and especially in North America, are responding to what we have brought to market, um, you know, through social media, through, um, I, I don't manage our social media, but we get feedback from customers and fans and readers who, who tell us what is really connecting with them about, you know, the formats of the Bibles. And we're always wanting to to come up with ways of presenting the Bible that are going to meet the ways that people read the Bible. So uh, in some ways, Bibles are like tools. We each of our, many of us have many Bibles and, and we have a Bible that we preach with. We may have a Bible that's beside our, um, our chair that we do our devotional time in the morning. We may have a Bible that we read uh, like a one-year Bible or something that we read devotionally and intentionally working through the entire canon in the course of the year. All of these are things that I get to work on and kind of try to respond to what we're seeing and hearing and helping to make the word of God, uh, to present it in a way that is going to connect with people where they are, whether they're a commuter or somebody that's working from home and all of the different changes that are taking place in the way that people uh, read and engage with the written word today. I come from a family of publishers, Jeff, and I just find this stuff fascinating. And I'm thinking about our listeners right now Probably they're thinking right now about the Bibles they have in their home. Most of our listeners, not all of them, but most of them are Christians who are avid Bible readers. Uh, and I wonder how many of them know about the Bibles that you and Tyndale House have done over the years. You're famous for the Living Bible, the New Living Bible, mm -hmm. but tell them a little bit. Let's make a connection between the work you do at Tyndale House and the sorts of Bibles that our listeners are used to reading and using. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, um, Tyndale House Publishers owns the uh, the translation, the New Living Translation, which was first launched in 1996. That's when I was in college. And among the Bible translators on that team were Beeson faculty, Ken Matthews and Alan Ross, both of whom were on the, the translation committee for that and continue to, to serve, I believe, on that, that committee. And so we're probably best known for the New Living Translation, but we publish all different translations. I mean, maybe 
some listeners will know this, but others may not, that every Bible translation that is a modern translation is owned by somebody. And so, you know, you look at down a list of, let's take the New Living Translation is owned by Tyndale House Publishers. The English Standard Version is owned by Crossway. Uh, sometimes they're publishers like Crossway or uh, Tyndale. Sometimes they are foundations or other kind of organizations, as in the case of the newer international version, the NIV, which is owned by Biblica, which is the new or more recent name for the International Bible Society, or the New American Standard Bible that's owned by the Lockman Foundation. And so lots of different publishers will publish these translations, but they have to do so under a license or with an agreement with the original, the owner of the translation, which may sound a little strange to those that aren't familiar with it. You know, can you really own the Bible? But it's actually, it's actually a good thing because it, um, it preserves the integrity of the translation. And uh, it means that someone can't just pick up a translation and make individual sort of changes to it in order to, to, you know, to corrupt it or to change it in a way that's you know, expedient or more appealing to a certain audience. Um, it's, a, it's intellectual property that is owned and protected legally. <clears throat> so, so we own, like I said, the, the New Living Translation, but that translation and comes out in all different kinds of Bibles. And so um, one of the probably best, well, most well-known Bibles is the One Year Bible, which um, uh, many people use devotionally to read through the entire Bible in a year in 15-minute kind of increments. Uh, it doesn't go uh, canonically. It goes, um, some of them grow chronolo chronologically. Others go uh, in just in a, in a different order that will take you through Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs in a year. Uh, and that's a, a specific kind of Bible that we do. And, and actually, uh, is one that we're most well known for because it pretty much is the leader in devotional Bibles um, and has been since it came out in the, I think it came out in the eighties, but I'd have to check on that. And it was an idea that when it was first proposed by Ken Taylor, who was the founder, nobody thought it would work. Everybody thought who is gonna buy a chopped up Bible that, um, you know, that is not, um, that is not, canonically ordered and who's going to want to do this and he he prevailed and it's been on the bestseller list ever since then but yeah that's those are a couple of the things that we're most well known for we also uh published the um the swindoll study bible with chuck swindoll who's a well-known bible teacher um and all kinds of uh of other different types of uh bibles and products including um the filament, uh, filament Bible, and also our filament enabled line, which is uh, kind of a, a cool thing that I found really a, appealing about Tyndale was we have hybrid um, text uh, Bibles with an app that allows you to access uh, digital resources uh, on your phone or iPad, which I think is a really wonderful way to have the best of both worlds. Because uh, I don't want to see, I, I really don't want to see. Um, <clears throat> print Bibles go away. Uh, I think that, that the experience of opening the scripture and <clears throat> sitting with it is uh, is something that is is too valuable to to want to simply just give up for a digital screen as convenient as that is. But we 
we think we found a way that people can have their cake and eat it too with with the filament uh, app that we've developed. Hmm. You mentioned marketing when you were talking about your job, Jeff, and that's something that I do here at Beeson. And as you were talking, I was thinking back to uh, various experiences going to the Christian bookstore and shopping for a Bible, like I want mm -hmm. a pink leather Bible or a study Bible or a pocket Bible. So what goes into marketing and selling Bibles? Like what are the types of questions and processes that go into getting Bibles out there um, and meeting the needs, as you mentioned earlier? Right. Yeah, when we when we think about um, selling and, and marketing Bibles, um, our approach is mission driven. I mean, the, we always start with a premise, and that premise is that reading the Bible and understanding the Bible will change everything. It, it will. It is a source of transformation in the lives of of people, people who don't know the Lord and who read the Word, who pick up and read the Word and and come to faith through the, the the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Those who are already believers and are growing in their faith, it, it, the word is a means of grace. And and so as we're marketing, that's always the, the core conviction is anything we do, the, the most important thing we do is provide an accessible and accurate translation of God's word for people. And so that's the bottom line. That's why we exist. And on top of that, um, we we do think about, well, how are people going to read this? How are people going to use this Bible? You know, um, here in Chicago, many people uh, commute to work in downtown Chicago on the train. And so I think of uh, friends who are commuters and who need a small uh, Bible that they can slip into a brief briefcase or into a pocket, and they can pull out and read during their hour-long train ride from downtown Chicago out to Wheaton. Um, there are people who use their Bible to preach, uh, and so as you're a preacher and a, has very different needs from the kind of person that's a commuter or uh, a student in high school. And so we think about um, you know what what would make what what would make the word of God um, appealing to every different kind of reader that would be interested in reading our translation uh, or the other translations that we publish and we do publish NIV Bibles we do publish an ESV Bible and King James Version Bibles um, but the New Living Translation is our is our bread and butter it's our kind of flagship thing that we uh, product or translation that we really uh, our mission is to get that into people's hands so that they can read it and be changed. So we're always kind of thinking, how can we connect with new readers? And who's reading? How are they using it? Um, and we know, you know, there are certain trends in publishing that women buy more books than men across the board. Women buy, tend to buy more Bibles than men. That doesn't mean we don't publish Bibles for men. It's just that we're sensitive to, to knowing that um, certain uh, there are certain things that women value in Bibles that, that men don't value. And some people may want a, a Bible that is simply the biblical text with some footnotes to help them understand the context or a cross-reference. Some people want study notes, and they really want to have the, the opportunity to dig into um, 
to dig into the scripture and apply it to their life. The Life Application Study Bible is uh, one of the big um, Bibles that I get to work with. And that, that's a, a really significant Bible that offers the opportunity to combine, you know, not just sort of um, historical background, there's some of that in there, but it's also very oriented towards life change, discipleship, to apply, the goal there is to apply the Bible to life so that uh, the Bible can be lived. And that's really what we are all about, is, is trying to get the Bible into ha the hands of people so they can understand it by the ministry of the Spirit and so they can live it as well. I'm in the middle of writing a, a global history of Christian doctrine these days, Jeff, a, a global history of the ways in which we've taught the faith that we confess uh, to people uh, over 2,000 years of, of church history. And it has me thinking more than ever before about what I have in common with brothers and sisters in Christ and other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And um, as I think about that in relation to the conversation we're having now, I'm wondering about uh, the degree to which even at Tyndale House Publishers, you all are thinking about making Bibles for people, not just Americans, not just people where we are, but in other contexts too. And here, I'm not exactly sure, is it, I know historically, American publishers uh, have produced a lot of Bibles for people in other parts of the world as well. In some developing countries these days, I'm sure there are good publishing houses uh, that publish Bibles uh, so that there's maybe less a need today than there might have been before for Tyndale to produce Bibles for other sorts of folks. But but where sure. are you now at Tyndale Absolutely, when it comes yeah. to Bible publishing for others, non-Americans, non-Westerners? Right. So that's that's to me, that's one of the most exciting things about Tyndale from the very the very first royalty check that our founder, Dr. Ken Taylor, received from publishing the new the, the living Bible back in the 60s. That very first royalty check he actually used to create a foundation. That foundation exists today. It owns Tyndale Publishers. And so we're a nonprofit ministry and all of our profits go into the foundation. And the one of the stated purposes of that foundation is to, um, is to provide funding and resources um, to the translation of the word of God around the world. And so from, our founding, this has been kind of part of our DNA, that we, through our foundation, are involved in providing uh, resources, expertise, guidance um, to translation, uh, indigenous translation groups around the globe who, um, who are, are looking to produce Bibles that will, um, that, that may echo uh, the, the New Living Translation stylistically, um, but we often will work with individual um, publishers in countries around the world to produce a, a Bible, not a Bible that's a translation of the New Living Translation or the Living Bible into another language, not an English to another language translation, but to help those publishers um, go back to the critical text of the, the Hebrew and Greek and create a new Bible translation in Afrikaans or German or Italian that is um, derived from the Greek and Hebrew text, but that is influenced stylistically by the sort of philosophy and, uh, and style that the, the New Living Translation has taken on. And so um, that is a, a really big 
part of our foundation's work is partnering with um, with groups around the globe who are um, who are doing that translation work in places, often in places where it is not commercially viable for them. Um, North America is a huge Bible market, um, but at the same time, the rest of the world needs the Scripture too. And increasingly, you know, we're finding that. Um, the Spanish language Bibles, for example, Portuguese language uh, Bible readership is growing. And so we're involved in, um, in you know, New Living Translation-like translations in Spanish and, and Portuguese that we, that we actually own and then uh, distribute to Latin America uh, as well as in the North American market as well. So it's, yeah, it's really part of our DNA. I like to think of one of the things that kind of attracted me to Tyndale was that it's really a ministry that is commercially viable. It's a ministry first. Right from the very beginning, uh, every, every bit of profit has been returned and been given out. So there's an amazing level of generosity that I've experienced in terms of royalty revenue profit being, being sent out around the globe funding theological education, funding Bible translation, funding ministries of mercy, and funding some of the, you know, household name ministries back, you know, decades ago that we, that we might think of today as sort of leading the way, being really significantly involved in with Wycliffe Bible translators, for example, in terms of sharing financial and other resources with them to, to help them meet the, the, the goal of providing a, a you know, a, re, a Bible for you know, all the major language groups, um, you know, in the short-term future. So it's, been, it's a really big part of who we are. That's a nice segue into what I want to ask you about. And it's really just about your own ministry. You mentioned this is a ministry. You've worked in publishing before Tyndale. You've yeah. also served as a pastor. I wonder if you can just talk about the ways in which you've seen God at work in these various ministries, how they fit together. Mm -hmm. And then if you want to say a word about how Beeson prepared you to be equipped for these various types of ministries as well, I would love to hear what you would say to that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, the desire to, to enter into Bible publishing is directly related to my pastoral experience. Uh, and especially going into to working with Tyndale on the New Living Translation. Um, you know, uh, at the last church I, I served at the kind of at the height of the pandemic um, as a transitional pastor, I remember standing and talking to one of our members after a church service. And he, he looked at me and, and, and just said, Pastor, I, I need resources to be able to, to, to understand the Bible. I just, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, we're teaching Sunday school. I'm going to Sunday school, you know, in small group. I mean, where can I go to find a Bible that I can read and understand? And this is around the time that I actually started, had started using the New Living Translation to preach from. Before that, I'd, I had um, primarily used the New International Version, mostly just because that's what the churches that I'd been in had used. And I found that as I was switched to preaching out of the New Living Translation, people were, were hearing it and understanding it, and it was connecting to them in a way that was, um, I, I, in other words, I didn't have to spend a lot of time in the sermon, say, going back to the Greek and the Hebrew, which is not a bad thing to do. And I realized that every translation, to some extent, 
in varying degrees is a, an interpretation. And we each of us has to kind of figure out what level of that we're comfortable with. But as I was working in a, you know, serving a church where I was the person with the most education with a master of divinity in our congregation. There are one or two PhDs, but in you know veterinary, veterinarian science or math or something like that. But overall, I was the person that knew the most about the Bible. And on a grand scheme of things, compared to faculty at Beeson, that's not a whole lot. But at the same time, um, what I wanted to do is to be able to, to lead these people to read and understand and engage the scripture. And that really uh, led me to, uh, to Tyndale and the opportunity to be part of something that is um, a ministry that is really connecting people to God's word and helping them understand it. One of the things that our founder, Ken Taylor, used to say is um, the best Bible translation is the Bible that you read and understand regularly. So in some ways, ways I don't, I care less about what translation people use. What I care about is that they're reading and engaging with God through the word uh, on a regular basis. And that through that uh, encounter, they're being changed. Um, and in terms of, you know, how Beeson kind of shaped me uh, and helped me on this trajectory towards a ministry of publishing, it's at every different level, I think, as I reflected on, you know, reflected on um, my time at Beeson in preparation for our time together. I, you know, I think that um, at the sort of 30,000 foot level, it was always really clear to me as a student at Beeson that the word of God is central um, to the ministry of the church, to pastoral ministry, um, that we are people of the book and uh, it is a trust that is given to us, whether we're um, pastors, professors, Bible publishers, elders, deacons um, in a congregation, is the, the word of God is the rule of faith. It's, the, it's by we examine our, our lives and our doctrine according to it. And so it needs to be in people's lives and they need to be engaging with it and we need to be helping them. Um, that's just sort of at the 30,000 foot level. But then, you know, as I took classes like uh, Gerald Bray's History of Biblical Interpretation, it was just such a, a fun experience to, to be able to, to survey the various schools of interpretation across time and to understand how there are so many perspectives on the Bible that we, you know, we so often think is so self-evident. And it sort of creates, I think, a humility before the text and a desire to you know, desire to know more and to read broadly and to hear the voices of sisters and brothers around the globe and across the centuries, to know that, you know, I don't bring the authoritative reading to the text. I sit under the text rather than over, standing over the text. And then just very practically, I think as well, just the, I was thinking about Calvin Miller, who, who I took for preaching, and just the, the significance, not only of the word, but of words, and how our ministry is conducted not exclusively, but predominantly through words, words that we speak. We certainly act as well, but, you know, as we preach, as we teach and, and counsel, as we, even as we have conversations with parishioners in their moments of crisis, we're, we are using words to speak the word. And so there's a, uh, Beeson gifted me with a really high appreciation for, um, the word and the words that we use to describe our faith and to to share the experiences of, of our congregants and, and fellow travelers. 
And so, you know, I think of my friends that are out there today as authors and uh, from Beeson as authors and, and professors and pastors. And, you know, many of those relationships continue to today and are, uh, I, I think, a testimony to that shared sense of the, the primacy of scripture and the value of communication, uh, especially through the written word. That's wonderful. And what a wonderful way to get to spend your days uh, making God's word available to people, putting it in people's hands. It is. It's, I feel very privileged to be able to do this. Hate to say it, Jeff, but we're about out of time. Uh, Kristen and I always end our interviews by asking guests what God's teaching them these days. And so we don't want to end without asking that of you. Anything that you might encourage our listeners by uh, with Absolutely. regard to how God's been working in your life in, in recent weeks? Sure. Yeah, I think, you know, as I reflect on where I am vocationally and, and these sort of moments, I think God is actually uh, teaching me patience. And I was reflecting on the fact that when I was a pastor, I was often an impatient pastor. And I, I tend to think that impatient pastors aren't really good pastors. <laughs> so I had a lot of room for growth there. And I often found myself becoming impatient with my impatience. But one of the things about uh, about Bible pub publishing and publishing in general is that it is a it is a collaborative and complicated endeavor. And so there are very few things that I do that only I can do. I am dependent on Bible translators, Bible people who write authors who write notes for Bibles, people who typeset the Bible, people who market it, who shepherd the schedules that you know the multi-year schedules that it takes to produce the bible and so through all of that god's been teaching me patience because there's a in my impatience is sometimes a, a tendency to want things to be to happen at my speed on my schedule and there's so much more going on in the world thank god than what i think is important and god is at work in so many different ways in the lives of the people that are working on these projects and people that are picking up and reading these Bibles. And so it's been a reminder that God's purposes are never thwarted, regardless of how strong or how weak the economy is or how many supply chain headaches there are. God is doing his, his thing. His mission is, is being accomplished, and I'm just grateful to be part of it. Amen. What a great word. What a great way to end this episode. Thank you, Jeff Gissing, for being with us. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Uh, you've been hearing Jeff Gissing, Director of Acquisitions for Bibles at Tyndale House Publishers based in suburban Chicago. We thank you for tuning in. We hope this conversation has been a reminder to you to get back into that chair and read your Bible uh, prayerfully and grow in your relationship to God, giving thanks uh, for people like Jeff who make that possible for all of us. We love you. Thanks for being with us. We say goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes.